Jesus told stories. We all know that. We've read parables. We've seen the accounts of him walking with his disciples. We know that he picked ordinary things beside the road to talk about. We know that he picked out things about farming and animals and planting and uh, wheat and tares and all kinds of stories, fathers, sons, travelers, Samaritans. Jesus told stories. I've thought about that a lot and wondered why. Maybe he knew that that's how he made our brains. You know, when you go to sleep at night, your brain tells you stories. We call them dreams. Maybe, I've wondered this week, maybe Jesus' ministry was so nonstop, so 24-7 prayer, that story just seemed to fit in the midst of it. Maybe Jesus didn't go away and write down sermon notes, but instead looked at his disciples on the road or at a meal and said, let me share a story with you. Maybe it's just the way we learn best. For any of those reasons, I'd like to share a story with you today, most of all, and then think about how it relates to the story that Reverend Duncombe read for us a moment ago. Years ago, before I came to Wilmore, uh, to Asbury Seminary, before I had kids, um, before many things in my life, I, I was a biker. I don't mean that kind of biker. <laughs> um, I was not a leather-wearing, engine-revving. You were picturing it, I know. <laughs> Maybe it's more clear to say I was a cyclist. I was an accidental cyclist. I, I did not dive headlong into a sport or a hobby. I accidentally fell into it. And here's how I have a, a close friend who is a cancer survivor. And she was part of a century ride, a hundred mile ride to raise money for leukemia and lymphoma. She was on a team and each person on that team that was going to ride a hundred miles had a friend or family member come with them and uh, bring their supplies and their snacks. And so as all these hundreds of cyclists went down the road, those of us who were support would drive our cars and we would go a little ahead of the pack and when they came to us we'd you know give them support kind of like at NASCAR they'd pull into the pit and we'd offer them water and snacks and things like that and then when they left we'd drive a little farther down the road up ahead of them so that we could offer them more and let me tell you that by the end of this day of you know 100 degree heat uh, I was pretty tired just from driving the car and all these cyclists finished 100 miles on a bike and they had a party that night. And at the party, they had a conga line. And the people who had been on bikes all day danced around the room and I collapsed in a chair in the corner. I had been in a car and in the sun, but they had the endorphins and energy from what they had been doing. And that's, that's when I learned it's, it's harder to be a bystander than a participant. It's exhausting to sit on the outside and point fingers at those who are doing the thing. Anyway, at the end of that night, they made a call for more people to join the next team and to sign up to be cyclists. And somehow, in my exhaustion and in the exuberation of the moment, I put my name and email on a page. <laughs> I didn't own a bike. <laughs> so I bought one, and then a few weeks later, 
I went on our first training ride with this whole team who would become my friends, our coach, Trent, uh, some of the people who would be up at the front of the pack with him. I, I really kind of longed to be like them, but I was just sort of learning to ride my bike again. And so the very first Saturday, we did 12 miles. And I thought I was going to die by the end of it. <laughs> but I came back the next Saturday, and we did 20 miles. And the next Saturday, we did 30 miles. This went on all spring, leading up to a day in May when in the Texas Hill Country, that word will come into play in a moment, in the Texas Hill Country, we were going to ride 100 miles. Now, here's something about hills. You don't notice them in the car so much. Really, all a hill means to you in the car is that your ankle has to it has to really angle forward slightly on the accelerator and you go up a hill. You notice them on a bike. And about halfway through our training, we began driving into the Texas hill country so that we could train on the hills. If you're gonna do hills, you need to train on them. And I began to notice the hills. Going up the hills, they are terrifyingly steep on a bike. Walking is easier than riding a bike up a hill because if you go too slow, you fall over to the side. You begin to count the petals on the flowers that you're passing. People in walkers begin to pass you on the sidewalk. <laughs> Not exaggerating, I can't, I can't, I'm a preacher. And those hills, you see them coming up and they're your worst enemy, but they're also training you for something. You know they're getting you ready, they're getting you stronger, and so you thank God for the hills, but you wish he would just flatten them out. And then on the other side, you find a different kind of challenge. Going down a hill is exhilarating. The same hill you struggled to go up and was your worst enemy is your best friend on the way down. But sometimes you can go faster than the cars. And, and you see another hill up front, so you want to gain momentum. You want to be going fast when you hit that next hill. So you let the brakes go, and you feel the power of gravity like you've never understood it before, and you fly. You feel like the fastest cyclist in the world, and it's all you can do to steer. But you know it's not your power taking you down that hill. You know nothing in your calf muscles made you go that fast. It's simply a gift. It's a movement. So movements of the Holy Spirit are the downhill rush of Christian ministry. You felt them. We've all felt the rush of being part of something that we didn't do in our own strength when we're not operating in our own power, and we know it. When a, a ministry or a church or a sermon or a counseling session just takes off, you feel the power of God moving it forward, not your strength, not your wisdom. You don't even know what you're doing. You're just steering it. When you watch someone's life transformed, you didn't do that. When you see someone healed, when you watch a family get knit back together, you know you're just a witness to what God is doing, hands on the handlebars, feeling the pull. You're propelled down that hill. It's both a thrill and it's terrifying, isn't it? Because God, who am I to steer? You're pulling this thing. We, we call it anointing sometimes. 
We call it a move of God. Some traditions call it God's favor. We call it revival sometimes. The downward pull, the momentum, the rush of God moving downhill is the fun part. And it happens sometimes in little spurts. You notice it in this place or this, but evidently sometimes it happens in an extended and communal way. I've never seen anything like this before, have you? It feels like a rush going in a direction and we're all just trying to hang on. Somehow I think the whole world has hopped on for the ride. I don't know about you, but people are texting me from other states, other countries, friends I haven't heard from in years. What's it like to be in Wilmore right now? I don't know. (laughs) Ask me in a year. Sometimes we don't ask ourselves as we're in that rush of movement, was there someone pedaling uphill and I just jumped on for the downhill? If you haven't noticed it yet, those on the platform in Hughes Auditorium, if you've been there, have been careful not to call this, not to name it, especially not anything historic. We're all just waiting to see what unfolds, but I haven't heard the word revival from their platform, so I'm hesitant to name it from ours. No one's trying to name it and claim it here. That's a beautiful thing. People are just stewarding and following what God is leading, but I will say this, every historic revival in history has begun with a small group of prayer warriors, sometimes one, praying hard in secret places. I've heard those prayers lifted up here for years. I haven't always understood them. I have to confess to you that sometimes I have rolled my eyes a little when people pray in a sustained way for something that I didn't even know what it was. And so I apologize to those people, the people whose prayer lives have been peddling for years. Whatever prayers have been lifted up to God, peddling this forward, and I've just jumped on at the top of the hill. Historically, the church has seen movement when it's seen prayer. And I think as we move forward from this, that's a movement we can't stop. Praying into it and jumping on with God. And so when you're flying downhill in the movement of the Holy Spirit, doing kingdom ministry at kingdom speed, it's helpful sometimes when there's no single person that's responsible for that movement. Christians need Christians, right? It's helpful when there's no single church, no single institution acting unilaterally. Not only do Christians need Christians, but churches need churches. And when churches gather together, band together, when institutions band together as we have this week, it means creating structures, even creating, and this is a terrible word in this generation, institutions. Um, No single church wants to do all the peddling by itself. No single leader needs to figure out all the questions brand new in each generation. No single church needs to figure out how to research health insurance policies on their own, how to recruit and train and hold accountable its clergy, how to do global disaster relief, really, in one church, how to to find some decent curriculum for our kids or young adults, for our seniors, When 
churches and Christians and institutions band together, we actually lower some of the hills for each other. So we don't have to, you know, jump off of the ride and figure things out on our own. These bands of institutions and churches actually help us take on hills. Because friends, conversions lead to the need for discipleship. Movements lead to the need for ministry. Church planting will lead to the need for church committees. <laughs> you can tell me which one you'd rather do, but I tell you, both will always be necessary. So the banding together, Christians need Christians, churches need churches, and it's not just the pragmatic questions, it's the deeply doctrinal questions as well. We don't need to try to figure this out as individuals or individual churches or in each new generation. I'm thankful for my own boss, Dr. Tim Tennant, who always says of worship, let's be sure our worship reflects the fact that Christianity wasn't just invented last Tuesday. I don't, it's always Tuesday with him, I'm not sure why, but that's what he names for me. Um, when we seek to comprehend the Trinity, do you want to figure that out for yourself today? When we try to decide big questions about how we practice this thing that God has placed in our laps, do you want to be the one responsible for that? Or maybe there are hundreds of riders on this ride with us. You know, when I was riding with my team, I mentioned my coach, Trent. He was really encouraging, and then he took off down the road. And I couldn't ever see Trent during a ride. <laughs> You're not shocked at this, but I was in the back group of those rides. I couldn't see Trent, but there was a group following Trent. There was a group following them, and a group following them, and a group following them, and I'll, I'll stop there, but I could go on for a while. I could see the group following the group. You get the picture, following Trent, and Trent knew the way. So, movements need history. They need to know that it's not just the people we can see that are guiding us. We need the tradition of the church. We need to know what tradition we're in. We have to travel in a pack, but we need to know what pack we're in. Sometimes here we use language about the Wesleyan world or Wesleyan theology, and sometimes people get a little prickly, like, are you worshiping a person? I would just say this, know whose pack you're following. Create structures and groups and packs, knowing who you trust, who's up ahead, even if up ahead means 200 years, 400 years ahead. Who's a thousand years ahead on your movement? How are you following them? Um, I think I've realized more than ever before that we need to know what pack we're following. This week, I've realized it. And because of talking to so many of you sitting out here, I've heard so many people express what a sweet time of worship this has been for our community. That sweet is the word I've heard most of all. Holy love are the words I've used to characterize what's happening here. And I've heard from some of you that other cases of movements of God, sometimes there's a central personality that characterizes it. I don't see any one person leading this. Sometimes there's an outward manifestation, works of um, the gifts of the Spirit, that the attention is on the gifts instead of the Spirit itself. And, and some of you have come in here, we've stood in that hallway together and taken a moment outside of this 24-hour thing happening and you've shared with me how you've been hurt in those places. A lot of us have come to this skeptical or 
hurt, healing, wondering, is this healthy? Is this one going to be healthy? It has to do with what pack you're following. We, we won't get this perfectly, but we're going to pray and steer and gather God's people together. And we don't expect the Christian life to be all downhill, right? Jesus told us. He told us. In this world, you will have trouble, he said. Pick up your cross, he said. Follow me. We're going up the big hills. So none of us are under the impression that a moment and a movement is a lifetime of downhill. But it does help us pick up steam to go up the next big hill. When you fly down, you know it'll be easier going up. Isn't that the truth? Those disciples on their way to Emmaus, they were with the Lord and they didn't even know it. I think I've been there. I think I've been surrounded by Christ and totally unaware. And then sometimes our eyes are just open and we look around us and we see it in the faces in community and we see it in worship. We see it in the breaking of the bread at the table and we see it in Christ himself. Sometimes our eyes are just opened. And do you know what they did? Jesus disappeared from their view. They didn't get their movement forever. But they turned around. The end of a long and tiring day, they turned around and ran back to Jerusalem to tell the others. And all the hills that had been hard on the way there, all the uphills became downhills because of the presence of Christ with them. The path, when you turn something like this, means that Christ is helping you fly in the next direction. Doesn't mean there aren't uphills as well. Um, as we journey together through whatever we're going to call this thing, whether you live here and are going to stay here, whether you're here for an hour or a day, we need God's word to guide us. We need God's people to center us. We need to be in a pack, and it needs to have started before last Wednesday. Our pack started a long time ago, part of it on this road to Emmaus. So friends, if you're here to fly, enjoy the ride. This is beautiful. If you're feeling more resistance, if this feels like pedaling for you because of hurt or numbness, that's okay too. Gather around. We can draft off each other as we go. But we're going to take this other places. The road doesn't end in Wilmore. So where your roads are headed, I invite you to open your eyes and see the risen Christ with you. Steer carefully and remember that none of it is in our own strength. Amen.